Grab your Bibles. Turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be here in Luke chapter 4. If you were with us last week, you know that I left off a verse at the end of uh, the temptation passage. I talked about Satan. Uh, and Satan, it says, departs from Jesus until an opportune time. Uh, Jesus encounters demonic oppression and opposition all throughout his earthly ministry. Uh, but between the temptations at the end of Luke, or at the middle of kind of Luke 4.13, all the way until Satan enters into Judas, uh, at the end of the book of Luke, you're going to have Satan recede into the background, and you're going to watch Jesus move throughout his ministry, really with not a lot of uh, visibility from Satan, until the end at that opportune time when he uh, indwells Judas and moves the betrayal passages forward at the end. And then you have, if you're looking with me in Luke 4 there, you have two verses that will really serve as an introduction to our time here today. If you look at Luke 4, verse 14 and 15 with me together, and this will, this will kind of, I'll kind of give a introduction essentially is a good way to say it. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report went out throughout all the surrounding country. Now, uh, if you know how the Spirit has worked up to this point in Luke's story, we knew the Spirit was involved in Jesus' conception. Back in Luke chapter 3, the Spirit was involved in identifying Jesus as both the affirmed, commissioned, divine Son of God, and then also the Spirit has led Jesus into the temptation passages and the temptation uh, in front in with Satan in the wilderness. And as we leave the temptation passages, which I hope were a, uh, an encouragement to you as we saw Jesus, our, our hero, our high priest, the brand new Adam descended from uh, Adam in the garden, uh, I hope that what we're seeing is that Jesus does all that he does through the power of the Spirit, and as Satan recedes into the background, what we have as we move into his ministry season is Jesus the victorious. Did you have that sense? Aren't you so filled with joy that Jesus defeats these temptations on your behalf? It, are, you, you leave the temptation, uh, the temptation passages and you go, Jesus is three and oh, he has won. He is victorious. And as Satan retreats, you have Jesus front and center overcoming all of Satan's schemes, divinely appointed by God in heaven, empowered by the Spirit, and he steps into his ministry season to where now Jesus is going to emerge from the wilderness, victorious over all of the demonic, and he's going to encounter people. So as you read 4.14, Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and a report about him went all throughout the surrounding country. He is becoming popular. He now through this report spreading is starting to do things that nobody else does. He arrives on the scene like lightning, a totally different, sinless, powerful, lie, temptation, conquering hero. And between the temptation passages and the passage that we're going to look at today is probably about a year where Jesus is now entering into his public ministry and receiving what you'll see in verse 15, that as he teaches in their synagogues, he is glorified by all. Luke, uh, of all the gospel writers, portrays Jesus as a consummate teacher of truth. 
He's consistently communicating things about God and teaching that you'll see next week that comes with authority. So Jesus bursts onto the scene and people are beginning to experience him as he teaches in their synagogues and he teaches in a completely different way than the other teachers that they've heard and you'll see a little bit of that here today. But Luke does something in this next section here in Luke 4, 15, uh, 16, all the way down to 30, that the other gospel writers in Matthew and in Mark move later in his ministry. There are only two moments where Jesus has a ministry encounter in Nazareth. This one and what Mark and Matthew capture for us in Mark 6 and in Matthew 13. And in Mark 6 and Matthew 13, this encounter that Jesus has is towards the end of his ministry. Matthew 12 was really the pivot of the book of Matthew, where Jesus now turns in parables because they reject him and reject his teaching and who he is. And he now begins to train the disciples and head to the cross. And this moment that's recounted for us here as Jesus is in his hometown and teaching, and Matthew and in Mark is later, but Luke does something different. Luke takes this moment where Jesus uh, has an encounter with his hometown, and he brings it right at the front of his ministry story. He puts it right at the front end as if to say Jesus has been divinely commissioned. He's been divinely conceived. He's been empowered by the Spirit. He's defeated Satan. And now we want to get a picture of what his ministry looks like. And you don't expect this passage to be here. It is such a minor chord. Haven't you felt the momentum of this book where each step that we have taken in being introduced to Jesus, understanding who he is, seeing his victory, seeing his priority, seeing his mission-minded commitment to his heavenly father, his victory over Satan, it's all been triumphant. It's all been the horn section exploding in the symphony about Jesus and who he is. And this point in Jesus' ministry comes off strange. Thematically, it feels out of place, but Luke has a very important reason for putting this where he does. Let me give you about three points that are sort of things I want you to watch in the story that Luke gives for us as Jesus ministers in his hometown. Number one is that Jesus will not allow others or the demonic to define his ministry. Jesus has a great way of uh, refusing human praise. He will not let sort of small town perspectives or a rumor going around, allow, uh, he won't allow those things to define him. Jesus will take the reins and Jesus will define himself for you, which is what he does in this passage. Number two, that this text deals with familiarity. Familiarity with Jesus. Have you found, Christians, that the Jesus you knew when you were a teenager seems to be a different Jesus the older you get? He does things that you don't expect. He makes choices in your life that surprise you. He seems to have all sovereignty and authority to bring seasons into your life and circumstances into your life that perhaps you wouldn't pick and you didn't expect and you didn't really ask for. It's almost like he's in control and he has an agenda and a ministry mindedness about you and your life. So this text is really about familiarity. And number three, this text is really about, I think the most important thing this text is about 
is about confession. This text is about confessing two significant realities that both have to do with what the gospel message is. It really, really is central to your spiritual life that you get a hold of these two significant confessions that Jesus is going to draw out of this passage for us. Okay? Now, is that enough of an intro? Let's get to it already, all right? Let's pray, and we'll ask God for his grace as we get into this section here today. Father, we pause just for a minute again to give thanks for new members who have confessed your faithfulness to them through uh, their belief in the gospel message. We give thanks again for people who are taking the public uh, testimony of baptism and partaking in that to become a part of this body. We pray that you would richly bless their spiritual lives, that this moment for them would be a demarcation moment where they remember going down into the water and coming back out and saying, my life is Christ. I live for him. What he wants and what he desires is the North Star of my life. So Father, for all of us as we encounter this text here this morning, we pray for great grace to understand what we might not see initially. But through meditation and your spirit and the clarity of your word, Father, we pray that we would gain a greater appreciation for Jesus, for who he is, for what he has come to do, and that we would order our lives accordingly. We give great thanks for your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, look at 4.16 with me. And he came to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth has been a little bit of a familiar place to us in the book of Luke up to this point. We know that's where Gabriel met Mary. We know that's where Mary and Joseph raised Jesus. We know that it had been a place that was a little bit out of the way, but it was out of the religious systems and routines of the nation that happened in Jerusalem. And here comes Jesus to the place called Nazareth. And Nazareth here in this verse is defined as a very partic- in a very particular way. It's defined as the place where he has been brought up. How many of you grew up in a small town and you have history there? Keep them up just for a second. Uh, uh, all right, so I know what we're dealing with here. Some folks in the balcony. All right, good. If you grew up in a small town, you know, uh, you know the places to get ice cream. You know who played on your little league teams or soccer teams or whatever. I don't, my family plays baseball. That's what I played growing up. So little league was, was big in my house. You know the places, the 7-Elevens where you went to get the Slurpees. You know the, the family mechanic. You know uh, the places that you can go to get away from people. You know the ins and the outs and the ups and the downs. You know the popular families. You know the unpopular families. You know the people you went to high school with who have those relationships that were incredibly formative for you. When I was growing up, my family moved when I was 15 between sophomore and junior year of high school. And I moved from Los Angeles, California to the northeastern corner of Pennsylvania to a town that was let, the town that I grew up in in Los Angeles had hundreds of thousands of people. The town we moved to had less than six. So it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. When I moved, uh, that's, that's a pretty pivotal time in your life, when you're just getting ready to drive. Uh, my kids are at the point in their familiarity with Charleston where they could get me home if we dropped them somewhere in Charleston. They would have driven uh, the city enough to know where we are. Well, I, di- I didn't know that growing up, and then we moved to a different place where I had to discover whole new uh, areas, whole new people, whole new rhythms of life. And then from that point on in my life, I began to move about every two years. So my relationship with places is odd 
because I have always felt from 15 forward in my life a little bit of a distance from places that mean a whole lot to people because my experience was move, go to college, do internships, move, move until I landed in Texas in 2004. So between 95 and 2004, my consistent experience was a sojourner. I was consistently packing up everything in my house, shoving it into my 86 Camry. For some reason, I played the drums too, which made great suitcases. I could pack all sorts of stuff in my drums, put them in my car, and I'd be going to the next place. But it didn't give me a sense of neighborhood. It didn't give me a sense that I think what Luke is trying to show us here is that here comes Jesus into Nazareth, and we know Jesus. He played on my little league team. His locker was next to mine. We got our first jobs together. He was a carpenter. I was a mechanic. I was a plumber. We would pass in the grocery store. And Luke begins his story in this small town, giving you a sense of who Jesus is in this place. Everybody knows Jesus. Everybody knows his parents. Everybody knows his brothers and his sisters. Jesus from a big family. We know Joseph's family. And Luke begins in this story that in a way that we would be transported into a small town with a lot of history, a lot of familiarity with Jesus. And if you look at the remainder of the verse, he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. Now, is anybody surprised that Jesus goes to church on the Sabbath? I mean, since he was 12, he was in learning at the feet of the teachers. So everything about this text as we open it up is very, very familiar to everybody involved except for us who read it. Because we have the years of Luke's chronicle for where we are now able to understand who this person Jesus is. But nobody in this story understands who he is. They've been exposed for 30 years to who he is growing up. They watched him take the yearly trips to Jerusalem. They watched him come back. They watched him work. They watched him grow up. They watched him as a middle schooler, high schooler, college, working with his dad, doing all sorts of things that would be totally normal and commonplace. And here's Jesus, a, a familiar face in a familiar place because everybody goes to Sabbath. It's a part of our routine as Israelites that the Sabbath day was a consistent expression. And here comes Jesus now with growing fame from verses 14 and 15 as he's now doing things and experiencing things and reports are coming back to his hometown. Who is this Jesus? Our Jesus? Didn't, didn't you know Jesus? You lived, a, we used to play wiffle ball. With Jesus. What is he doing in all of these places? He has this report that's coming back to us about who he is. And now here he is in town and he shows up on a Sabbath day. And not only that, he shows up in the synagogue. And it sounds like he's been teaching at other synagogues. And here, our Jesus from our town is in our synagogue on our Sabbath day with our families. And he is doing something where he is going to stand up to read. Now, this is one of the only passages in the New Testament that gives us a little bit of insight as to what the Sabbath day experience was like for a Jew. The synagogue would have a ruler of the synagogue. 
who would kind of chart out an order of worship. They would have Jews who would be able to read both the law and the prophets and give up and give comment on them. Jesus at this point is going to stand up and give an interpretation and an application of a reading from the prophets. And he chooses to stand up to read. Verse 17, the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him which may or may not have been planned. It may have been a reading of that day chosen by the ruler of the synagogue. But either way, the prophetic scroll is put into the hands of Jesus and Jesus intentionally unrolls the scroll and he finds the place where it is written. Which in my opinion means Jesus knows what he's going to say as he chooses this text. Amen? Jesus has a plan as to what he is going to say to these people as a familiar face in a familiar place about the doing, of, doing a familiar thing. And as he embarks and steps into the ministry mantle that God has for him, he has something very important that his hometown needs to hear. You with me so far? You okay? Verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, let me just take some pieces out of this to help you see what Jesus is doing here. He starts with something very, very important in our understanding of the book of Luke. Do you see what it is? He starts with verse 18 that says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now, that should ping in your ears, shouldn't it? We've heard some stuff about the Spirit. Just recently, we, thought, we saw the Spirit descend on Jesus as a dove and the divine commendation from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So we as the readers of the book of Luke know because of Luke's work that the Spirit has been involved from conception to affirmation and identification of this individual has been anointed and commissioned by God. So that makes sense to us. Number two... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news, which is something that's only been mentioned four times up to this point in Luke's writings, and really only in the mouth of John the Baptist. Whereas John the Baptist confronts his culture, it says he preached the good news with many other exhortations back in Luke chapter 2. So Jesus now says the Spirit of the Lord is upon this person. And this person has been anointed. And this person now is taking up the mantle of the forerunner of John the Baptist, who now brings good news. Who does he bring good news to? The poor. Now, the poor in Luke's time and in Isaiah's time, and by the way, this is a passage from Isaiah, if you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you'll see it's Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. You can read that on your own. I'll summarize that section in just a moment. But Luke begins to telling us that Jesus is there to proclaim good news to the poor, which is a greater term than just kind of economic poor, which is certainly included. But in this time, you have not only economic poor, but you have social poor. You have the outcast, those who are outside the family of God, those who don't have any, not only worldly wealth, but worldly influence whatsoever. And what's interesting is as Jesus uses this term poor, we'll see it when Jesus gets to the Beatitudes. But Jesus and Luke will talk about the Beatitudes, and he'll get in Luke 6 to talk about the poor. He'll talk about... Um, 
the hungry. He'll talk about those who are weeping and those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So what Jesus does is take all of those situations of lack and interpret them in light of himself. And then he contrasts that in Luke 6 with the rich. Those who, in Luke 6, didn't listen to the prophets. So Jesus sets up this contrast. This whole passage is contrast, right? It's a whole passage contrasting an individual who's going to fix these significant economic, social, spiritual realities. Number two... Proclaim uh, good news to the poor. Number two, he sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. If you were to read this in the context of the book of Isaiah, this is essentially true of all of the prophets. But when the prophets show up with the nation of Israel, pre-exile, there are some problems in the people of Israel. The people of Israel have forsaken God, forsaken his prophets, refused to obey, closed their ears... And what is happening in those prophets is God judging his people for refusing to listen. And essentially what happens through the prophetic word of Isaiah is that these people refuse to listen and what is coming is exile. What is coming is poverty. What is coming is me turning off the environmental geological engine in their land to where there's no more rain. I will make the skies, God says in Deuteronomy, like bronze. So that you will not have crops, you won't have water, you won't have food. Your enemies will oppress you because you have forsaken me. So here are the people of Israel in Jesus' time hearing liberty for the captives. And who is it that is over Israel at this time? Well, it's Rome. They're currently occupied. And Jesus is taking them back to Isaiah 61 to another time in which they were facing consequences for their sinful rebellion. Recovering of sight to the blind, which we've already seen in the book of Luke. Zechariah has told us that we are awaiting the sunrise from on high that will dawn on those who sit in darkness. Simeon said, my eyes have seen your salvation. Not only that, you have liberty for the oppressed, which if you have another cross-reference in your Bible, probably comes from Isaiah 58. It's a a reference to the year of Jubilee, which was a once-in-50-year event in the nation of Israel, where all slaves were free, all debts were canceled, all land goes back to their initial owners. It was a time of great joy and great freedom. And Jesus closes proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. Could you get, I mean, isn't this the passage you want to preach? This is like, just imagine, we're going to Sabbath. All right, baby, get the kids. We're going to Sabbath. We sit down and we hear the absolute best text ever. We hear about the divine reversals of poverty and blindness and famine and captivity and financial oppression upon our people. It is like preaching Revelation 22. Don't you love that passage? You get to the end of your Bible and every tear is wiped away. There is no more sin, no more struggling, no more difficulty. Everything is healed. Everything is redeemed. Everything is restored. I mean, Jesus couldn't have picked a better passage, really. 
to build in the hearts and minds of people in the room. Imagine what this individual is going to do. Now, if you, you probably don't know, just real quickly, in the book of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah builds toward a singular individual. Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61, what Jesus just read for you. Isaiah 61 comes in a place of, of Israel's restoration and glory from 60 to 62. But before that, we read this a couple weeks ago when we talked about John the Baptist. We read, to close our service, we read Isaiah 59, if you remember that. And Isaiah 58 and 59, there are all these problems in the nation. And the nation recognizes we can't fix these problems in our life. We can't make our way back to God. There is a breach in our relationship and our sins have separated us from him. And at the end of Isaiah 59, God says, nobody can do it but me. I'm going to be the one to fix this problem. It says he looked and he said, my arm will work salvation. I am going to fix this thing. And when you get into Isaiah 60 to 62 and the restoration and the glory of Israel, right in the middle of it is Isaiah 61, where we are waiting for an individual to set these things right that we cannot fix. And here comes Jesus. Now, what is Jesus going to say about this text? You know what he's going to say about this text, right? You're wise and learned, aren't you? Don't you feel the anticipation in the room? Say yes. Okay, good. You're here. You feel the anticipation in the room. You feel we have been waiting for Jesus to step onto the scene to be the victorious Satan-conquering king that he is. To fix all things, to put all things right. Verse 20. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Now, that's like me just walking down, sitting down, and going, now what? But what would happen is that these rabbis would read, and then they'd sit, and people would listen. So Jesus finishes his reading, reminds the people, draws their mind back to a time of Israel's great glory and restoration, rolls up the scroll, hand it, hands it back to the attendant, sits down, gets ready to teach, and this is the shortest recorded sermon in the whole Bible. And just like a good preacher, Jesus has three points. And here they are. He's got a when, he's got a what, and he's got a who. Isn't that good? Thank you, Jesus. That's helpful to take notes. Verse 21, he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Number one, he's got a when. Today, have you ever noticed when you watch inaugurations, that they are trying as the new individual comes into the presidency and stands on the platform, puts his hand on the Bible, and then addresses the people. It is always a moment that is pregnant. It's we are waiting to see what the new inaugurated president has to say about this particular moment. Interpret this moment in light of your new election as the new leader who's about to lead us into new horizons. And Jesus makes a point to say, today matters. Today and this moment is about to be interpreted by me and who I am. Number two, he has a what? What has happened? This scripture has been fulfilled. Now this shows up later when Jesus talks to the disciples at the end of the gospel message or at the end of Luke's gospel, when he interprets all the things in the law and the prophets concerning himself. 
all of what is fulfilled, what he'll say to them. So Jesus says there's a today. There's a moment that matters. There's an urgency to this moment. Number two, something has happened where God has kept his word. God has not forsaken us. God has not forgotten us. God gave a promise in Isaiah chapter 61. And he has not forgotten his promise to his people. Hallelujah and amen. But number three, it's been fulfilled with the who. And it's been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the your hearing is an interesting it's an interesting thing for Luke, to, for Jesus to say. Because what he's putting in front of the people who are listening is a biblical fulfillment that requires a response. You with me? He doesn't just say, today, I did some stuff. He says, today, God has been faithful to his word, fulfilling his promise, and now what I'm putting in front of you is the fulfillment of that promise in your ears, which means you ought to respond to what God has done, right? Isn't that what we do every week? We read God's word, we meditate on God's word, we ask God to speak to us, and then we need to stand up, leave this place, and apply the truths that we have heard from God's word. You with me? Okay. What did Jesus just say? Jesus just said from Isaiah 61. Do you see how many times me is mentioned in Isaiah 61? Three times. Jesus just said, I'm the me. I'm the one who will reverse blindness and poverty and captivity and oppression. That the great reversal that you have been longing and waiting for in your spiritual life is found in me. Not an activity, but in a person. I'm the me. Now, verse 22. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel how weird it is for the guy you went to high school with to come back, walk into church, open the Bible, and say, hey, you read that part before? You know what they're talking about. It's me. See you later. You feel how weird this is? You feel how nobody in the room probably expects this? And commentators have a real hard time with verse 22. I don't really have a hard time with it because every time Jesus talks, verse 22 happens. In all of his ministry, verse 22 happens all the time. Jesus is reading one of the most powerful, emphatic, glorious passages in the Old Testament about Israel's restoration and glory. And he's reading about the divine, authenticated, spirit-empowered messenger, servant of God who's going to accomplish all of God's desires. And everybody, you can feel them going, yeah! Verse 22, they all spoke well of him. Yeah, Jesus, what a great text. And they marveled at all the gracious words that were coming in his mouth. Woo, Jesus is great. What an awesome sermon. That... Isn't he Joseph's son? Is... What did he say? Didn't he just... Fix your mama's table with his dad. And he's saying he's the, he's the servant. Okay. This is Joseph's son. And the whole text goes, because everything up to this point has been awesome, awesome. Jesus, preach it, tell him, glory, marveling, reports going out, glory. He's awesome. He's, wait a minute, he's Joseph's son. I don't understand. Verse 23. Now, if you thought that Jesus didn't pick fights, you are wrong. 
Jesus picks fights. Okay? In the power of the Spirit, Jesus picks fights. Verse 23, he said to them, doubtless you will quote this quote me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. And he explains that kind of obscure proverb, but basically it's a, it's a picture of a physician who has a lot to say about everybody else, but can't solve his own problems in his life. He won't, you know, take an Advil, whatever. But he says this, what we've heard you did at Capernaum, do in your hometown as well. So Jesus has this famous reputation. That's why Luke starts by saying there's this big report and Jesus in all of Galilee, everybody's talking about this guy. Everybody's talking about his ministry, his teaching ministry happening in the synagogues. And now everybody starts to think about what they've just heard in the mouth of Jesus. And they start to ask some more questions about, wait a minute, we're pretty familiar with you and who you are. We, we know where you're from. We know what's happening. We know your family. We know your dad's name. We know your mom's name. We see your brothers and sisters. What are you saying? What are you talking about? Give us more than our familiarity with you and a Bible verse. You need to give me more than that because we've seen you. We know you. We know where you're from. We hear about these miracles in other places. Do one for your family. Do one around the people who know you best. Prove that you are who you say you are. Twenty-four, and he said, "Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown." Now, that verse is a thunderclap because of what Jesus just said. I just, let me show you this real quick. If you look up back in verse nineteen with me, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Favor in Greek there is the word that is acceptable. It's the year of the Lord's welcome and acceptance. And then when Jesus stands up and says in verse 24, truly I say to you, no prophet is, same word, acceptable in his hometown. No prophet receives a welcome in his hometown. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Who are you talking to? Why are you talking such a big game? Why, how, who dares say that they're the fulfillment of Isaiah 61? Now we as the readers feel that tension, don't we? Imagine being there and not having Luke's account up to this point. Imagine this encounter and the social dilemma and tension it creates between Jesus and his listeners. Between Jesus and the people who know him best. There's no other town that had more time with Jesus than Nazareth. They had three decades with him. And when Jesus steps onto the scene and says, I'm the me, they go, give us a sign. You aren't who you say. That's not true. And Jesus said, there's no problem acceptable in his hometown. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, now watch this. This is, this is incredible. What Jesus does here is incredible. 
But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, to the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. This occurs in Elijah's ministry in probably the most wicked time in Israel's history. In, uh, it's in 1 Kings 17, and it says in 1 Kings 16 that Ahab, the king at the time, did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This time was so bad that Elijah flees his encounter from Ahab and Jezebel and cries out to God saying, there are no believers left but me. God, that's how bad it is out here. Can you imagine thinking, driving around Charleston going, it's so bad out there that I think I'm the last one. That's where Elijah is. That's the state of the country. In the midst of the wickedness of, his, of this country that is experiencing famine, that is experiencing oppression, that is experiencing uh, spiritual difficulty, being run by a wicked man. God takes Elijah and he sends them out of town to a widow who takes care of him at Zarephath. And if you know the story, uh, Elijah is fed by a brook for a little bit. The brook dries up, the ravens are feeding him, and God takes him and he says, go to the widow in Zarephath. And when he arrives on the scene at Zarephath, there's a woman outside gathering sticks. She's picking up sticks and Elijah comes up and says, hey, I need some bread. Would you make me some bread? And she goes, sir, I'm gathering up these sticks because I got one boy. And what I'm getting ready to do is make my last meal because we've got no other food. It's a famine. It's super, super bad. What we're going to do is make one last meal, one loaf of bread, and we're going to die. And Elijah shows up on the scene with this woman and says, hey, bake it for me first because I promise that the oil and the, and the stuff, the oil, thank you, Thank you, the stuff you grind and it turns powdery. The oil and the flour will not go out until the famine is broken. Okay? And the woman obeys by faith in what Elijah told her to do. Keep that in the back of your mind. Verse 27. There were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them, Elisha, and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. That's from 2 Kings 5. Naaman was a Syrian general who had conquered Israel because God had given Israel into his hand. But Naaman had a big problem. He's an enemy of Israel, but he's also a leper. He hears from a servant girl that he abducts from the nation of Israel. This servant girl tells him there's a prophet in Israel. They can fix leprosy over there in Israel. He shows up in front of Israel's king and says, hey, heard you can fix leprosy. The king is so stunned that he tears his clothes and sends Naaman away saying, am I in the place of God to heal leprosy? I can't do that. Elisha sends a message back to Israel's king, says, tell Naaman to come and see me so that he would know there's a God in Israel. Naaman shows up in front of Elisha's door. Elisha don't even come out. He sends a servant boy out. The servant boy says, hey, hey, uh, go wash in the Jordan. <laughs> Naaman, super mad, says, why can't I go wash in any of, the, any of the rivers in my own country? He's got another servant. Naaman's life is characterized by servants telling him great stuff. His servant tells him, if the prophet told you to do something tough, wouldn't you go do it? What if he tells you something easy, like go wash in the Jordan seven times, why wouldn't you do that? Naaman, with leprosy, takes the word of God's prophet, obeys it in faith, and comes back with skin like a baby. What is Jesus doing? 
Why is Jesus reminding us of some of the greatest Old Testament prophets? Why is Jesus reading one of the greatest writing prophets of the Old Testament in front of all of these people who are questioning his identity? So before you read 26, 28, how do you think these people are going to respond? They're going to go, I see it now, Jesus. You're the man, spirit and power, servant of the Lord. I got it. Jesus tells these stories of the wickedness of Israel. He tells these stories of God passing over people who refuse to listen to him and sending them to people who receive the word of the prophet, who act in faith on what the prophet has said, even though things don't look good, things don't feel good, and they don't think things are going to work. Verse 28. When they'd heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Which tells you, from time to time, if you understand Jesus correctly, it is a legitimate response to get mad. Would you agree that Jesus is a good preacher? Jesus knows how to preach. Alistair Begg, one of, my, one of the guys I listen to from time to time, he goes, nobody knows how to preach, period. He's been preaching for 30 years, and he goes, nobody knows how to preach. The only person who knows how to preach is Jesus. That's it. Nobody has any idea what is happening when you open the word of God, preach it to people, trust the spirit to do something that you can't do, apply it in a way that you hope makes sense, and people leave and are blessed. Do you know what's happening? You have no idea, but Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. Jesus knows precisely the idolatry he's exposing in the hearts and minds of people who are incredibly familiar with him. People who have a small town vision of Jesus, who understand in a limited way who he is. And this is why I started by saying Jesus will not be defined by your small town singular perspective of who he is. He is going to define himself on his terms. So the question we have to wrestle with as we get to verse 28 is why are they filled with wrath? And I don't think it's sufficient to say they're filled with wrath just because people outside of Israel got blessed. That may be part of it as the promise of the gospel through Jesus Christ moves from Jews into Gentile lands. But there's something, I think, in the quotation that Jesus gave us that helps us understand why they're so mad. Look at what they continue to do. Verse 29, they rise up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. What is Jesus doing? If nothing else, Jesus is showing us that theological familiarity with him is insufficient. Because as Jesus shares this story, and he tells us, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. What he's saying is that my hometown won't welcome me. And then he gives two examples of people who do welcome prophets. What is consistent between Naaman the leper and a woman at the end of her uh, resources? 
what's consistent with both of them, and you'll read this, 1 Kings 17, 2 Kings 5, is they both understand where they're at. They both understand there is no other hope than the word of the prophet, which takes us back to the quotation from Isaiah 61. See, Isaiah 61 is a beautiful quotation because it tells us about who Jesus is and what he has come to do and how he's going to reverse all these things. But for you to understand and for you to welcome, for you to embrace Jesus and to bring Jesus into your life and to take Jesus at his word requires you saying something incredibly devastating to your pride about yourself. It requires you saying, I am poor. It requires you saying, I am blind. It requires you saying, I am captive to the things that hold me down. There is sin in my life that I cannot fix. I'm not strong enough to overcome my spiritual blindness, my spiritual poverty. poverty. I, am, I cannot overcome the substance abuse that oppresses me and that I go to for my, my longing and my significance. I'm too committed to my reputation. I'm too wealthy and too enamored with what people think of me. And this is, I think, the fear for me as a pastor, for me as an individual, is when I read this, I have to come back to remind myself that for me to embrace Jesus, to understand who he is, to lay hands on the hope that is in his person, is to confess some devastating things about myself. It's to say, I am helpless I cannot fix this. I'm not strong enough to get out of my poverty on my own. I have no wealth to bring him. I have no sight to see. I need somebody who works salvation with his own arm to come into my life and to do things that I cannot do. And to know Jesus as a theological idea is insufficient for welcoming him into your life. You will never know intimacy with Christ if all you do is learn about him and don't confess some things about yourself. You'll never know him that way. He'll say, I'm not welcome here because you won't do the hard work of confession. It's great. Hey, man, I love singing songs, singing about Jesus. That's great. Who wants to list their sins from the past week? Anybody want to do it, stand up, start doing that now? You know how important that is to your spiritual life? Imagine the current relational conflict you are in. You walking into that conflict where it's unresolved and you say, I am a sinner in need of help from a Savior who's outside. I can't see things correctly. I love the wrong things. I'm bound to my sin. I need a redeemer. I need someone empowered by the third person of the Trinity to come in and turn my life around. And his hometown wants to go, meh, that's a good verse. That's a good passage. But you're telling me I got to admit I'm poor? You're telling me I got to be as needy as a leper? You're telling me I got to be at the end of my resources and view myself as a woman about to die except for one meal? You feel where that, why does Luke leave this here? Why does Luke start the ministry this way? Why does Luke give us a picture of Jesus getting, going up on top of a hill with people who hate the message? Because at the end of the book, that's where he's headed. Amen? That's where he's going. And he won't walk away. 
He'll get to the top of the hill with people who hate the message he has to say. But the opportunity for us as we read this is to embrace the grace-filled promise of Jesus. If you are willing to confess your sin, I said this to our equipping class today, he who conceals his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses his sins and renounces them finds mercy. Isn't that good news? Man, isn't that good news? For us to be willing to say, God have mercy on me, a sinner opens up glory and intimacy and Jesus, the suffering servant on our behalf who has the power to reverse the most devastating things about us. Do you believe Jesus can do that? Can Jesus turn somebody's life around? Amen. Amen. Can Jesus turn that conflict in your life, that fear of man? Can Jesus break the power of of idolatry in our lives? Is there somebody who has a plan to fix us and heal us and ultimately make everything new? It's in Christ. But it won't come until he's rejected, he's crucified, he's dead, he's buried, and he's raised. Which is what we just celebrated through baptism, right? So Father, we confess we are sinners in need of a Savior. We are not strong enough to accomplish our own freedom. We're not wise enough to remove our own blindness. Father, we need your favor. Father, for those who are in this room who hear this message, I pray that you would give them the courage to confess their sin, to repent, and to receive the Lord's favor, the Lord's welcome because of what Jesus has done for us. Father, what a glorious truth this is that we can be welcomed into your family, that our sins can be forgiven, that you can turn our lives around. So Father, I pray that this morning for anyone who is here who hasn't taken that step, that they would confess their sins, they would renounce them, and that in Jesus' name, they would find forgiveness and mercy. It's in his name we pray. Amen.